Well, good afternoon. I'm really grateful that you have chosen to spend the next 45 minutes in here. Uh, I know this is a really tough time of the day. Uh, I won't even call you down if I see any of you napping. Uh, it's funny to me at our churches, I'll have people, I'm sorry I fell asleep. Like, you know, in a, in a room full of people, I had you singled out as the one back there that was falling asleep, you know, but I, I just go along with that. Uh, I, I don't know if y'all heard me telling some other people, but I found out about three hours ago I was doing this class today. I thought it was tomorrow at this time, so I, I'm really glad that things happened the way they did so that I could uh, be reminded that I was supposed to be here right now. Uh, I'm glad to see there's this many people with an interest in Ecclesiastes because two years ago I would not have been one of the people in this class. Uh, so I want to begin by sharing with you some real encouraging quotes, okay? This comes from Pierre Jules Renard, who was a French author, and he said, There are moments when everything goes well. Don't be frightened. It won't last. <laughs> and a Jewish writer by the name of Shalom Aleichem once described life as a blister on top of a tumor and a boil on top of that. Carl Sandburg, the great American poet, compared life to an onion. He said, You peel off one layer at a time. And sometimes you weep. But I think the basketball coach, Rick Maharis, put it best when he said, everyone's worried about the economy this year. Hey, my hairline's in recession, my waistline's in inflation, and in general, I'm just in depression. <laughs> <laughs> and some of us can relate to those statements perhaps better than others, depending upon where we are in life, but I would I would suggest that especially can we relate to that if our focus in life is under the sun. Which is what Solomon, or the writer of Ecclesiastes, talks a lot about. So today I want to make a case for, uh, what if you're a preacher, I want to make a case for you preaching through the book of Ecclesiastes, or, uh, or if you're a church member encouraging your church to have a class or whatever on this subject, because it's a message that is so relevant to our days. When people are asking questions from a skeptical viewpoint, when people are, are living in this hopeless age, and let me tell you how it even came about that I decided to preach through it. Several years ago, one day after church, I'm standing in the back of the auditorium where I normally stand, and uh, I was talking to one of our elders, and I don't even remember what brought this conversation up. But uh, at some point in that conversation, I said, you know, I don't even think that Ecclesiastes ought to be in the Bible. It's just such a dark, depressing book. And he looked at me, and I could tell, he just, he said, you've got to be kidding. He said, it's one of my favorite books in the Bible. And because I respect him so much, I thought, well, you know, maybe I need to revisit this thing. And so I did. And it has been life-changing for me. Uh, Ecclesiastes, I know it, ta it, it appears to take such a sober view of life that some people have doubted the spiritual value of it. Uh, it seems out of place in the body of Scripture. And so I want to try to make this comparison for you. Uh, when people first read C.S. Lewis's book, A Grief Observed, after his, after his wife had died, he wrote this book about his grief experience. And 
people didn't receive it very well. This wasn't the C.S. Lewis they had come to expect. When they read C.S. Lewis, they were, they were used to having someone that explained their faith, who defended their faith, who strengthened their faith. And suddenly, here's these words of doubt, these words of questioning. Let me give you two quotes from Lewis's book. Which, by the way, in our own grief experience with the loss of our daughter eight years ago, this book really helped me, but it's different stuff from Lewis. And, and so he says things like this. He said, it doesn't really matter whether you grip the arms of a dentist chair or you let your hands lie on your lap. The drill goes on and on. Another place he said, meanwhile, where is God? Go to Him when you, your need is desperate. When all other help is vain, and what do you find? A door slammed in your face and a sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. After that, silence. You may as well turn away. The longer you wait, the more emphatic the silence will become. And his readers weren't expecting something like that from him. But it is an accurate description of the journey of faith that many of us have been on. Right? So when it comes to Scripture, many people have expressed a similar reaction to Ecclesiastes because it just doesn't seem to fit with what we read in other places. We, uh, we aren't ready for the words we find there. It doesn't seem to match up. And the words disturb us. They raise questions that we really discourage people to ask that we neglect or that we sugarcoat. It answers a basic question about life. How can we live by faith in a world that simply won't behave? <laughs> How can we live by faith in a world that does not live by the rules? That question has puzzled philosophers and theologians for thousands of years. And maybe those questions trouble you too. So as we begin our journey, we need to be introduced to our guide. Uh, he refers to himself in chapter 1 as the teacher or the preacher. We've assumed for a long, long time that it's Solomon, but he never actually says who it is. He doesn't reveal himself by name. This is what he says as the book opens. These are the words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. Obviously, it's someone who's got money, they've got power, and they've got time to pursue the question of, does life have any meaning? Uh, but strictly speaking, the book's anonymous. Then he steps into the pulpit. And I'm going to refer to him as the preacher because I have a bias towards preachers, okay? So uh, I'm going to call him the preacher this, this afternoon. And so he steps into his, his pulpit and he just unsettles all of us immediately when he shouts out, meaningless, meaningless, says the preacher. Everything is meaningless. Not exactly Joel Osteen. Not exactly <laughs> Zig Ziglar kind of stuff, right? Uh, the word meaningless is used 38 times in this book. And it is the Hebrew word hevel, which some have said describes what's left when a soap bubble pops. 
Think about that. And so he comes out sounding like this crazed man on a downtown street. You've all been there where you're downtown and this guy comes up to you or you know, he's yelling across the street and he says, your life's a waste of time and, and, and life's just worthless and all, you know, all these things. And what you want to do is you just want to go to the other side of the street, right? Uh, go over where you can get into Proverbs or Psalms where there's more positive stuff going on than here in this Ecclesiastes book. But Proverbs is a book that focuses on norms. It focuses on general truths. Uh, but Ecclesiastes is kind of like the exception to the rule. Think back to when you were in school and you were learning, you know, your teacher was teaching you basic general truths and rules. Rules are actually easier to learn than the exceptions to the rules, aren't they? Uh, they take more effort. So just about the time we think we have the rules figured out, then the teacher steps in and says, well, that rule's true most of the time. But here's the exceptions. For instance, we all know the little saying, I before E, right? That's the general rule, I before E. And just about the time we get I before E down, the teacher steps in and says, well, except for the exceptions after C or after anything that sounds like A, like neighbor and way. So then you've got to learn all the exceptions to the rules because if you don't, you're not going to pass the spelling test. And that's the way it is with life. You see, Scripture needs Ecclesiastes to keep us from, set, from settling for these trite formulas about life under the sun. Let me give you an example. Proverbs 13 and verse 21. That verse says, Trouble pursues the sinner, but the righteous, the righteous are rewarded with good things. That's a general truth. But you know what? If that is absolute truth, then Job's friends were right when they said the things to him that they said. Job, there's something wrong in your life and you need to confess it. And yet the preacher then comes along and he says in chapter 7 and verse 15, in this meaningless life of mine, I've seen both of these, the righteous perishing in their righteousness and the wicked living long in their wickedness. Job was a righteous man. But his experience didn't correspond to the standard categories. It's as if Job's friends knew the rule, I before E, but they had no place in their minds, in their brains to put, except after C or words that sound like neighbor and way. And as a result, they misrepresented the general rule and they hurt a friend in the process. They did it all misguidedly thinking they were speaking for God. So Ecclesiastes offers this exception voice to remind us that we can't hand out these one-size-fits-all solutions to every situation people face in a world that is broken. Life under the sun's messy. Have you noticed that? And contradictions abound when we involve human beings, 
flawed human beings living, living in a broken world. So the preacher describes life as it actually presents itself. If someone were to have come up to him and said, you shouldn't talk about things like that, he would have said, well, people are already experiencing them. And if they said, well, the things you're talking about shouldn't happen, he would have said, but they do happen. So what are we going to do about it now? And don't make the mistake of thinking that because these words were written maybe 3,000 years ago that they're not relevant today. Ecclesiastes is as fresh as the headlines in the newspaper or on, on your homepage. Corrupt politics, injustice, incompetent leaders, materialism, a longing for the good old days. This is relevant stuff. And so I want to suggest to you several reasons that we need to be studying Ecclesiastes today. And the first one is that it, I think it helps us ask the bigger, harder questions that people want to ask today. I don't know if you've noticed, we're living in a world where people are asking some tougher questions when it comes to spiritual things. And they're wanting some answers. And, and Ecclesiastes allows us to do that. Questions that lie at the very heart of life in a broken world. The preacher is kind of like me in that he's not really satisfied with some of the pat answers that he was given in Sunday school. In fact, it's some of those pat answers that he has the most problem with. And so if you're a person who often finds yourself saying, yeah, but this is your book. Secondly, Believe it or not, even though Ecclesiastes is not an in-depth theology, it's not really that deep in the study of God and His nature, it really helps us to, to worship the one true God. Because in Ecclesiastes, he's going to talk about God as mighty creator and sovereign Lord and powerful ruler of the universe and the only wise God. And third, it helps us to live for God and not for ourselves. Because think about it. The preacher, he had more money, he, had more, he enjoyed more pleasure, he possessed more wisdom than anyone in the world at that time. And yet it ends in despair. Uh, having it all nearly destroyed him. There's an Old Testament scholar named Sandra Richter that puts it this way. She said, when he climbs, talking about the preacher, when he climbs the golden ladder of ultimate success and looks over the brink, he actually has the wherewithal to step back from the edge, climb back down, and tell the rest of us there's nothing there. He seems to be saying, let me spare you the trouble. Learn from me in my experience. And fourth, and I think this one's helped me the most, is it helps us to be honest about the troubles of life. Uh, it captures the, the futility of life. It captures the frustration of living in a fallen world. He talks about the drudgery of work. And he talks about the emptiness of foolish pleasure and the mind-tumming, the mind-tumming, the mind-numbing tedium of daily life. And reading it helps us to be honest with God about our own problems. I love this. One scholar describes Ecclesiastes like this. 
He says it's kind of a back door that allows believers to have the sad and skeptical thoughts that they would never allow to enter the front doors of their faith. Because regardless of what the health and wealth folks will tell us, here's a truth. Life is filled with inequality. And it can be just as problematic for a believer as it can be for an unbeliever. And even those of us who believe in God don't end up having all of our questions answered, do we? In fact, sometimes the further we step into life, the more things that we don't have answers for. Well, the preacher of Ecclesiastes wrestled with this too. And he makes a case. I believe, as I've re-looked re at this book, I believe the case he makes is basically this one. And, and I'll try and show you how I've come to this conclusion. Usually we go to the very end of the book and say that's his conclusion. That's, he's summing it up. And I think he is. But there's some other signs of some other things he's wanting us to come away from this with too. And I think what he's basically telling us is learn to enjoy the moment that you've been given. Just learn to enjoy it. The good life exists only when we stop being obsessed with something better. And it's a condition of savoring what is rather than always wanting what might be. doesn't mean we can't have goals, but it means being satisfied with the here and now. Let me show you what I mean. There's three passages that I want to point us to in Ecclesiastes where you know all the dark stuff he deals with in bulk and then he'll sum it up in three different places he, he kinda wraps up what his conclusion is about all this darkness and I want to take you to those three summary statements we're aware of the conclusion that he comes to this is often the only thing other than the the song that the birds you know uh, there's a time for everything under heaven well we all know that one but then this is the other verse you probably know from Ecclesiastes. Chapter 12 and verse 13. Now all has been heard. Here's the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep His commandments. For this is the duty of all mankind. And it's easy for us to conclude when we just read that that the preacher has spent the whole book uh, beating on the emptiness of life. And then he says, so here's the conclusion. I now feel like the preacher's telling us this. Life under the sun, which he talks about a lot, life under the sun is meaningless. But we've got to identify what's he talking about when he speaks about life under the sun. He's talking about a horizontal view of life that never looks up, that leaves God out of the equation. And that is meaningless. But he's going to continually insist in this book that life with God is an adventure to be enjoyed. So, for example, chapters 1 and 2. Chapters 1 and 2, the preacher says that the pursuit of wisdom and the pursuit of pleasure and the pursuit of work in and of itself Horizontal view is meaningless. 
But here's his conclusion. And don't miss it. I'm reading from the New Living Translation, chapter 2 and verse 22. So I decided there is nothing better than to enjoy food and drink and to find satisfaction in work. Then I realized that these pleasures are from where? They're from the hand of God. For who can eat or enjoy anything apart from Him? This, this is a turning point in Ecclesiastes. Uh, Martin Luther in his commentary on this book said that this is a remarkable passage, one that explains everything preceding it and everything following it. In fact, he and others have said that this is the point of the whole book. Now, there's some who would argue that. There's other scholars who say, no, that's not the point. They would say... Um, that when he says there's nothing better, that Solomon's kind of expressing this grudging appreciation of things. It's kind of like Solomon or the preachers saying, well, it isn't much, but I'll toss you this bone. At least you can enjoy a good meal occasionally. If that's what he's saying, it's nothing more than the Epicurean philosophy. It's uh, the attitude of carpe diem, seize the day. Which, by the way, Paul in the letter to 1 Corinthians says that's not, you know, that's a that's an empty way of life. But I happen to believe that the preacher's being more positive than just saying, hey, just uh, kind of grab for all the gusto you can for a little while because then it's over. This is the first of his enjoyment passages, as some people call them. And he's not giving in to despair here. I think he's beginning to see the difference it makes to live with God at the center. Notice at this point, he's not seizing for something. He is receiving from God. Did you catch that? That's, that's a huge difference from where he's come from. And so his message isn't simply the meaningless of life under the sun, but also joy from the hand of God. And it's real important that we don't make either one of those by itself the purpose of this book. They're both, they're, they, are, they are co-themes of this book. And in fact, he'll say both of them in the same verse sometime. There's this bittersweet balance to life. We live in a world broken by sin, but we also live in a world that God made. And what did he say about it? It is good. We live in a world that God the Son came in the flesh and lived among us. We live in a world where He's working through it to, to redeem it, to, to mend the brokenness. So notice again carefully what He says in chapter 2 and verse 24. So I decided there is nothing better than to enjoy food and drink and to find satisfaction in work. He's, previ he's, he's previously said that he's found no fulfillment in food or drink or work. But now he's saying that's where we can find satisfaction. What's the difference? God's the difference. Up to this point, he's only mentioned God one time. And actually, the one mention of God up to this point is in chapter 1 and verse 13, and he kind of blames God. God's part of the problem at that point. 
He says in verse 13, what a heavy burden God has laid on mankind. But here, God's presence makes all the difference. The preacher saying that no one can ever find any true joy in anything apart from God. So if you're having trouble finding joy, if you're having trouble finding enjoyment in life, God must not be at the center. And if you find yourself deeply dissatisfied, this could be the reason. We often take good things and we make them ultimate things when in fact those good things are God things. The eating and drinking that the preacher enjoys, where do they come from? The hand of God. What? Was that Solomon talking? <laughs> he stopped trying to seize pleasure for himself and he's decided to savor pleasure. This has been a huge thing in my brain. To, to, I mean, it's like it's a total turnaround. He's now decided to receive pleasure as a gift from God. And this is a basic principle that we see applied throughout Scripture. Paul wrote in 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 4, since everything God created is good. Did you catch that? Since everything God created is good, we should not reject any of it, but receive it with thanks. Earthly pleasures, they are a gift from God to us. Now, even they have their limitations. They don't give us eternal satisfaction. Uh, Ray Stedman in his book, Is This All There Is to Life? says, isn't it strange that the more you run after life, panting and panting after every pleasure, the less you find? But the more you take life as a gift from God's hand, responding in thankful gratitude for the delight of the moment, the more that seems to come to you. That's a truth, as my wife would say, truth. That is truth. 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 31, Paul said, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Uh, here's another example, chapters 4 and 5. There the preacher says that the, the advancement and pursuit of riches is meaningless. But listen how he sums it up. Chapter 5 and verse 18. Even so, I have noticed one thing at least that is good. It is good for people to eat, drink. Are you beginning to see a theme developing here? <laughs> to eat, drink, and enjoy their work under the sun during the short life God has given them and to accept their lot in life. And it is a good thing to receive wealth from God and the good health to enjoy it. To enjoy your work and accept your lot in life, this is indeed a gift from God. God keeps such, such people so busy enjoying life. I love that. He keeps such people so busy enjoying life that they take no time to brood over the past. And so here he's giving us a balanced, God-centered view. He says that we should not see wealth 
as the goal of life. Rather, we should see wealth as a means by which we can help others, but also as a means by which we can uh, bring enjoyment to life. Now, I know we've kind of been given a guilt trip about that, haven't we? And he again tells us the truth about finding joy in the everyday things of life, like working and eating and drinking. Now, I'm going to go out on a limb here. I think probably for most of you this isn't going out on a limb too much anymore, but I can t remember a time when it would have been. I want to challenge you to get a legal pad and write at the top the word wine, and on one side of that legal pad, write everything positive that Scripture has to say about it. On the other column, write everything the Bible says negative about it. And you're going to find the positive list is going to be quadruple the length of the negative one. Now, we all know drunkenness is wrong. But wine is, in Scripture, it's, it's a part of the enjoyment of a life that God has, God has given to you to enjoy. Uh, and we're, we're going to come back to that. But joy is real and time is short and whatever time we have is a sacred gift. That's what he's telling us in this book. So here's the last example. Chapter 9. Chapter 9 he begins by talking about how death is certain and how life is uncertain. But he concludes this in uh, chapter 9 and verse 7. So go ahead, eat your food with joy, and drink your wine with a happy heart. For God, listen, God approves of that. God approves of that. This is my son Josh. He's going to be keynoting tomorrow night, by the way. And I've heard Josh on several occasions when he's talking about the Gospel of Luke. He says, you know, you read through the Gospel of Luke and you have to come to the conclusion Jesus had to be overweight because he's eating all the time. And really and truly, is there anything that... When you get to the end of your life and look back over it, I would guess that the, the things that are going to come to mind to you the most is what brought you fulfillment and enjoyment. Is when you sit at table with people you love when you sit at table and get to know people and just experience that fellowship together. Isn't that about the most basic pleasure of life that there is? Really and truly. And that's what Solomon keeps coming back to here. Um, he's returning to something that he's told us over and over again. Enjoy life right now. Spend time with good friends. Throughout Scripture, wine and good food represent what God gives us to cheer us and to comfort us. So enjoy it and celebrate it with others. Um, then he says, now this is really going to blow some of our minds. It did mine because I didn't grow up in an environment like this. He says, God approves of you enjoying life. That was just like a burden taken off of my shoulders. He approves of us enjoying life. Our Puritan roots have left us thinking, if you're enjoying it, it's a sin. 
I can remember when I was a kid on trips and with our family, and it was it was somewhat of a joke, but not totally. But it's almost we would you know my dad would get on us because there were seven of us and just a a Chevrolet Impala. You know, I mean, uh, it was crowded. We would be on a trip for eight hours, and, and we would start teasing dad. Dad, would, we would say, Dad's going to say, "You having fun? Stop it!" You know, I mean, <laughs> and that's kind of the way I grew up uh, religiously. You're having fun, you need to question whether you can really do that or not. But would you recognize with me that Jesus was criticized for enjoying life? What did they call him? He's a glutton. He's a drunkard. Was he either one of those things? No, I mean it was just charges they were making, but it is a sign that he was doing that enough that people were identifying him with eating and drinking with people. He enjoyed life. And God created this world for His creation to enjoy. Do you know what Eden means? The Hebrew word Eden, it means delight. <coughs> God created this place that He placed man and woman and it was called delight. Psalm 16 and verse 11 says, You make known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in Your presence, with eternal pleasures at Your right hand. I would suggest to you, as we hear the words of that psalm, I would suggest that if we do not enjoy God's gifts, that we dishonor the giver. So chapter 12 and verse 8 says, Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Everything is meaningless. Okay, that's the way he started the book, isn't it? Now he's come back around to it again. This is his assessment of life under the sun. This is his assessment of life with God out of the equation. And that kind of life does not satisfy. But the preacher has found joy. The preacher has found purpose. He's found what he was looking for. Have you ever lost your car keys? <laughs> or your glasses? Or uh, your cell phone? I've told people most of my phone calls to my phone, or my outgoing calls, most of them are when Beverly says, would you call me so I can find my phone? <laughs> well, one day I, I lost my glasses, my reading glasses. So I went in the bedroom and I looked around and I went and looked in the sofa cushions and I went out to my truck and I looked in the garbage can and I couldn't find them so I went back to the bedroom and I went back to the sofa cushions and I went back to my truck and back. I couldn't find them and finally I thought, where are they? <laughs> and they were right there on top of my head. That makes you feel kind of dumb, you know. <laughs> but. Uh, Sometimes the things we go searching for are right there in front of us and we don't even see it. And I think that's the preacher's conclusion. So in chapter 12, in verse 13, he says, Now all has been heard. Here's the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the duty of all mankind. Don't be focused on life under the sun. Keep your eyes fixed 
above the sun and enjoy the life that the one above the sun has given you to live. So I was thinking about this and then it struck me. It's been a number of years ago, but it really made a great impression on me. I heard Lynn Anderson talking about, uh, I can't even remember what his subject matter was that day, but then he said, do you know the Westminster Shorter Catechism? Do you know what it has to say? This is the Catechism of the Presbyterian Church. He says it begins by asking this question. What is the duty of man? And do you know what the person who has gone through catechism is supposed to say to that question? What is the duty of man? The answer is, man's duty is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. I can remember getting the glorify God part through my upbringing, but I don't really remember getting the and enjoy Him forever part. So I'm going out with that. You know, I, I'm, I'm on the back stretch, no matter how you measure life. I'm on the back stretch now. I'm going out with that as the part of the philosophy of my life. I'm going to finish out the equation. I'm going to glorify God and I am going to enjoy Him and His gifts forever. That's all I got. So we've got a few minutes. If anyone has uh, something you would like to bring up from this book, obviously I would think you're here because you have an interest in Ecclesiastes, and so I'd like to hear from you. Yes, sir. I have a comment. I, I, and I heard you say something that I've not found it in the book. Okay. And that, that was the, the, the joy of communing. It seems to me that, that when I read Ecclesiastes, I mean, he sees himself, he sees God. He does not see anybody else around him. And so when he's talking about eating and drinking, he's not talking about the pleasure of communing. He's talking about the pleasure of tasting, taking it in. But he never talks about anything that he does for others, anything that. Yeah. So I mean, it seems like his his entire uh, focus has been on himself, and that makes it vanity. I I would agree with you. I, I did. I stepped out of what I when I was talking about that. I was really talking about the whole of Scripture more yeah. than just Ecclesiastes, because we do see in Scripture the idea of table fellowship is just a right. big deal. So yeah, I didn't, pick, I didn't pick that particularly out of Ecclesiastes. I think there is probably, the, I, I do think you're right that he was very self-focused as he was viewing life under the sun, but I would hope that we could conclude if he came to understand that life lived with God in this world would include also living it, you know, with the joy of other people. Uh, but yeah, that's a good point you made. Yeah. Anyone else? I do think it goes along with what Christine Hayne was talking about this morning of even us attracting people to Jesus. I thought about I thought about her some of the things she said lining up with this. Yeah, go ahead. Just our own delight 
mm-hmm. and enjoyment of life mm-hmm. and uh, learning with intention how to carry pain. Because I certainly don't think Christians are void of pain. But when we learn to carry that and can still find delight at the hand of the Lord mm-hmm. is with spiritual di- discipline, intention, but it's certainly attractive for right. Jesus. Right. How attractive do you think, and I'm not saying everyone has done this, but when, when many of us have made Christianity out to be a... Uh, I can't think of the word I'm looking for. Uh, Binding straitjacket. That's hey, I'll take straitjacket. That's not where I was going. Okay, but like it's putting a straitjacket on us. Who's going to say, "Hey, yeah, that's what I want"? You know. But don't our faces show that most of the time? Mm. Yeah, and in fact, I think I skipped that in my notes. Uh, There was a scholar who said that many Christians could be on the cover of the book of Lamentations. <laughs> they would make a good cover for the book of Lamentations. Yes. Well, um, I had the impression that um, the teacher or the preacher was, was learning and that he was, he was telling us his journey of trying everything. Mm-hmm. And it, it reminded me of um, our early days of uh, turning 18 and 21 and becoming an adult and trying to figure out what this world was all about. And in some cases, um, maybe we don't, we don't know that the world is so fallen. Mm-hmm. That, and so he, he's going around, uh, the preacher teacher is going around just trying out everything. You know, trying out uh, women and trying out um, jobs and just and trying them out without God. Yeah, yeah, important. Right, Mm -hmm. and then as he matures, then um, he finds God Mm -hmm. and and puts God into the equation. Mm -hmm. And so it just seems like he's going through this journey, as and it's something like we may go through as we go through the aging process. That's right. Uh, if this is Solomon that wrote this, my my desire, my my wish is that this was written by him late in life. I hope he didn't write this and then experience some of the stuff that we know about the history of Solomon. I would hope it would be in reverse. I would hope this is his going out story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Did you have something? No, I was playing with her. Oh, okay. Yes, sir. I- um, for me, I, I, it, it was interesting as I've, I've always believed, well, there's kind of two types of theology that I struggle with when they get preached in terms of, like on the one end I see kind of a, a cotton candy theology of the, you know, the, I can do all things through him who strengthens me, and you know, and then it says, oh wow, life is great, fun, you know. And I love Ecclesiastes as being kind of a, a balance against that. Of, yes. Of realizing that, look, sometimes life sucks. That That's part of life. Mm-hmm. And God is with you through everything. And it doesn't mean that because you believe in God, you're magically going to have all these wonderful things happen to you. And, and I love kind of that antidote for it. But it was also, I, I was kind of surprised, and I, I also really appreciated what you're saying about kind of the other end of things, too, because... 
as far as there's also uh, sometimes preachers get into the whole preaching of asceticism and and like oh you know we give everything up your jobs you know everything you enjoy just follow Jesus and and I think that kind of gets needs a balance too That's right. because I mean it, sure it's great for a preacher to get everybody to say oh let's give up all our money and donate it to the church and <laughs> you know and and they can be really successful and have all these wonderful resources because people are just throwing them at the feet but. But there's also something you're losing out there that God's provided you, where there's, you know, perhaps going the other end on the dial of, so that it just seems like there's a natural need to enjoy what God's given us, pleasure in the right context, yes, to enjoy life, but also to respect God and, and respect kind of the temporariness of it, that you enjoy it in its moment, but also realize that's not the eternal. And so, so anyway, I found that interesting as far as Ecclesiastes being kind of a antidote in a way of kind of both ends of the spectrum there. Yeah, it does serve as a as a good balance to to other like you know I started out talking about that. Uh, it it kind of pulls us back to the exceptions. Uh, and, and yeah, I love I love the way you described it. Uh, I think I think a God. A God-centered enjoyment of life is exactly what He created us and put us here for. Yeah. And everything's in balance. Life's got to be lived in balance. Yeah. Well, we're up against time. Hey, let me pray. And uh, again, thank you all so much for spending your afternoon here with us. I appreciate it so much. Father, I'm just so grateful for this message. It's meant a lot to me in my own life. And, and I pray that, Father, that it, it, uh, that it can become that for all of us here today. I pray that we can obviously uh, learn from this to lift our eyes up from, uh, from the pursuits of this world to you, but also to realize that every good and perfect gift comes from you. And so because of that, we ought to enjoy it. That's the reason you give it to us. And so uh, I just pray that you'll bless us in that. I pray that as I've been convicted last night of our, our need to really recognize uh, how powerless we are without your Spirit. And obviously if we allow your Spirit, His reign in our lives, He's going to open our eyes to the balance of all of this. So I pray that we will be a more Spirit-filled people who depend more upon His power within us. And may we go out from this place, Father, encouraged by that. Thank you. Thank you so much. We pray through Jesus' name. Amen.